Welcome to the podcast of Vertical Life Church. We hope and pray these messages encourage and challenge you to find your glorious purpose in Christ Jesus. For more information, visit us on the web at www.vlchurch.tv. Amen. As Dave said, I'm Pastor Joey. Um, I am the pastor here at Vertical Life Church. I want to welcome you, those of you that have been coming. Uh, we just are so excited that you're spending time here with us today. We are in the book of Exodus. We're taking a journey through the scripture. And so this is not a sermon series like what we would typically do where we would teach through different subjects. This is a journey through the Bible to remember but to rekindle this passion, this heart that we have for Jesus. I truly believe that if we glorify Jesus, that God is going to build this church. If we glorify Jesus, he's going to do profound things in our lives. And so uh, we are going through the scripture to kind of go back and remember what, uh, what Jesus has done, how God's revealed Jesus all the way through the scripture to rekindle that passion and that heart for us. Uh, we can go ahead and kill the music now. And uh, as we transition to our, our message, Discovering Jesus Throughout the Old Testament. If you remember three weeks ago, we looked at how God visited Israel on the mountain at Mount Sinai. Do you remember that? That, that, that it was, seemed to be like a pinnacle Sunday for us as well. It's just we, a strong sense of the presence of the Lord. And then a couple weeks ago, I, I so appreciate Dave and Janice presenting their, their testimony last week. Did you guys get blessed by that? Such an awesome thing to be that vulnerable and to, to share. But what we know is that God uses all things together for good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. All right, so they're able to share their story and do what, uh, show what God has been doing in them to help other people. And that's, that's what the church is all about. And so we appreciate that. But a week before that, we talked about how while Moses is with God on Mount Sinai, that the people of Israel began to turn away from God as they could see his glory. They could see him. They turned away and decided to make an idol for themselves and worship at another altar, another idol. And, and how that just was re representative like a marriage ceremony where the, the groom and the bride are at the altar and the groom is taking his vows, but the bride strays away to commit adultery with someone else in the crowd in view of all the people because she was impatient that the the groom hadn't gotten done uh, on time or what according to what she thought. And so it's just this, this incredible look at how we as sinful human beings can see the goodness and glory of God yet turn and chase after other things because of what we wrestle with in our own lives. That at that very moment that they were about to receive the vows of God in the form of the Ten Commandments, they turn and walk away. This week we're diving into what was going on with Moses and God while Moses was 40 days on the mountain? As God is having this conversation and begins to relay to Moses a blueprint of something he wanted Moses to create. He wanted Moses to make a blueprint of a tent that is called the tabernacle. This tent was a, not just a dwelling place for Moses. It had a specific purpose in mind. And the blueprints were so specific that God said, don't, don't fail to do anything that I have instructed. Do it exactly the way that I have instructed you to build this tent. This tabernacle will be unique. It will be special. 
When I think of tents, I think of camping. Do we have any campers in here, people who like to go camping? Raise your hand. Now, there's a difference between camping and glamping. Who here likes to actually go camping? A few. How many like to go glamping? Right? You have to have running water. You have to have AC in, the, in wherever you're staying. You know, snakes can't get to you, that, that type of thing. Right? Uh, I, my wife and I, we've been watching the show Alone where they take these survivalists out into the middle of nowhere in these remote areas, drop them off, and they have to try to out-survive the other ones. They're, they're completely alone, no camera crews, nothing. They have to film themselves, and, and uh, by the end of the show, they've been 70-some days out in the wilderness. They're starving to death. They, they go weeks without eating because they can't find food, and they're just hanging on for dear life to try to win this prize. And just, we get to watch them build all sorts of stuff from trees and logs, like building boats from, from nothing. It's really remarkable to see the things that they do. And, and I'm just, just intrigued by it all. But I like the idea of that better than I do the actual application of that. Right? If, if I were to go on that show, I'd probably make it three days and be calling to come home. That's, that's probably more so my personality. But I do like being out in the woods. And uh, just the idea of living off the land is, is a lot of fun. My wife and I, we actually went camping uh, several years ago, back when we lived in Missouri, and uh, went with several people, and there's this couple from our church that joined us, and we were staying in a tent. We weren't in a camper. We were on a tent, on the ground, with our sleeping bags, and this couple that came, they, they were one of our good friends, and I, we were like, man, this is going to be fun. We're going we're gonna to spend a couple days out in the woods camping. It would be so much fun. We, we get there. We start unpacking our stuff. Then they show up. And they bring their dog. Now, normally, you know, I wouldn't have a problem with that. But this dog did not qualify as a dog. This dog was about yay big. It was a chihuahua, okay? And, and it was a sad, pathetic, like I, th I thought that maybe they were bringing it for bait so that we could actually go hunting or, or something and actually get something. But uh, it, it was just... Not even a dog, you know, and uh, they brought it because it had anxiety issues, right? So the dog is not only pathetic that it's this small, but it's also on medication for anxiety, and they couldn't, didn't feel right leaving at home. So they were that, that, that couple, you know, that just bring their dog wherever they, they go. And uh, so we're like, okay, you know, I, I guess that's what it is. They're going to be the only, we're going to watch for poop or whatever, you know, because they, they were that couple, and, and, but they took care of him pretty well. We, we hung out. We had a good time. That night, we all went to bed. The dog stayed on their side of the tent. We shared a tent with them, and it was uh, divided. And so their dog stayed on their side of the tent. We stayed on our side of the tent and went to sleep. Now, the next morning, in a dead sleep, I get awoken by this dumb little dog crawling up onto my chest. Now, the reason why I didn't like this dog, well, first off, if, if you think, think about it, they, they thought it was super cute, which I, you know, chihuahuas are ugly in my opinion, but they thought it was super cute because the dog would make a face and the dog would, it would look like it was smiling. And they're like, oh, the dog smiles, it smiles, and, and I'm like, this is pathetic, right? So in the morning, out of a dead sleep, of course, I, I don't like snakes or anything like that. So in the back of my mind, going to sleep in a tent, you kind of think, well, what if something gets in in the middle of the night, you know? 
So I feel this thing crawling up on my stomach, and I'm like, what is on me? You know, I'm just thinking. I open my eyes, and the dog is looking at me and staring at me, smiling, smiling at me. And I freak out. Now, before you judge me, let me show you what the smiling dog actually looked like. That's what it looked like smiling, right? It wasn't growling or anything, but I freaked out. I think I may have helped the dog learn to fly. I can't remember exactly what happened. But then the dog had the audacity to growl and bark at me like I did something wrong. You know, it, it just was crazy. So I will forever remember Bridget the Chihuahua. And I'm pretty sure she knew I didn't like her anyway, but she probably did that to spite me. But this tent that God has Moses make is not a tent like this for camping. It is, was something else far more, far more specific, far more significant than even Moses understood at the time. And it really goes back to Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden. If you have your Bible with you, you can turn to Genesis 3, but we'll be around Exodus 24, 25, 26 for the most of the day. And you'll have um, the, the verses there in the YouVersion Bible app. But it's in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 7. This is after Adam and Eve bite the apple and they sin. They, they, they disobey God. They listen to the voice of the enemy. They disobey God. And it says instantly their eyes were both opened and they knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Then they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid, himself, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. God among our yeah, the, of the Lord your God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and he said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So something changed. Right? Their life was no longer the same. They, they were now different. And when they heard God walking in the garden, it says they heard the sound. Somebody say the sound. When they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden, Rather than running to the Lord, they ran away from the Lord. They hid themselves from the Lord. That word sound is, can also be translated voice. When they heard the voice of the Lord, they ran. Do you remember what happened when God spoke on Mount Sinai? The people said, don't speak to us, God. Speak to Moses. There's a correlation and a connection between the fall and they hear the sound of the voice of God. They hear the voice of the Lord. Who is the voice of the Lord? John chapter 1 says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. The very voice of God is the one we call Jesus Christ. They heard Jesus walking in the garden, the presence of the Lord, and yet they turned and they hid themselves. And not only did they hide themselves, they sewed fig leaves for clothes onto their bodies to cover their shame. They hid from the presence of God because for the first time in recorded history, the presence of God was not exalted in them. Remember, God made them as the image bearers of Christ, the mirror image of the Lord. That the glory of the Lord was to reflect upon them and so that the earth could be filled with his glory. But for the first time in history, no longer did the glory of God reflect upon them as the image bearers. No, it exposed them. 
It exposed their nakedness. Sin always separates. Always separates. So before the voice, before Jesus, when his presence would enter the garden, it would draw them to him. Now, being altogether aware of their nakedness and shame, they run from God. This is the plight of man. This is the core of our circumstance, of our struggles, of every situation, why we run from God and turn to other things to try to fulfill, try to satisfy, try to cover our shame. Why Israel went to the golden calf. It's because in the light of our nakedness before him, we are so fearful of judgment that we rush to lesser things like fig leaves to try to cover our shame. So that maybe when we stand before him, we won't feel so naked. Or better yet, to deceive ourselves into believing we're better than what we are, like the golden calf. That the golden calf, they didn't have to feel ashamed or fearful of judgment in the presence of God. They could feel completely comforted and revel in their own shame, not feeling judged. And they could walk away feeling good about themselves. It's the folly of man. It's fig leaves. Fig leaves don't cover anything. And really nothing is hidden from the eyes of the Lord. In 1 Chronicles 28 verse 9, David to his son Solomon says, My son, learn to know God. Learn to know the God of your ancestors intimately. Worship and serve him with your whole heart and a willing mind for the Lord. What's that say, beloved? The Lord sees every heart and knows every thought. Fig leaves don't hide. There's nothing that we can cover ourselves. The Lord sees every heart, knows every plan and thought. If you seek him, you will find him. But if you forsake him, he'll reject you forever. Nothing is hidden from the Lord. But we keep running from him because we fear this judgment. And we try to keep covering up because we are spiritually naked. Did you know that the reason why you have clothes on today in this very room is because of sin? These are fig leaves. They wear out. You know, we, we get a paycheck and we finally think we have a little extra money. And so what do we do? We go to the store and we go to the clearance aisle because we're too cheap to buy what's on, you know, brand new on the rack. But we find that special thing. We put it on. It makes us feel good because it's new and we're walking around. And if you're really shallow, you know, you're walking around in your, your, your new threads. You look at other people and you're like, oh, where do they shop? You know, that's not, that's not as good as me, you know, over here. Right? But it only lasts for a while. Why? Because after a few washes, what was brilliantly colorful begins to dim. And after a few months, holes, snags, tears. Until eventually, you throw it into the donate bin if you haven't destroyed it to go buy other leaves to cover the shame. The things that we use to cover our nakedness doesn't last. It doesn't it doesn't cover. All of our attempts to heal our brokenness, to cover our shame because of sin, fails to produce what we want it to produce. And God knows this. God knows the heart of man. It's deceitfully wicked. No one knows how sinful it really is. And because of sin, because of this, this stuff we deal with, we can't come to God. We can't pursue him. Paul in Romans says there is none righteous, no, not one. None even seeks after God. That we don't pursue him because of 
this sinfulness. We run the other way because of fear of judgment. And God understands the plight of man, so he decides, if man can't come to me, I am going to come to man. I'm going to descend on this mountain. And I'm going to tell you, Moses, I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to start a relationship with you. And I'm going to come and I'm going to, because of Abraham's obedience, because of Isaac's faithfulness, because of Jacob's faithfulness and his honor, I'm going to choose your people to be the, the people I reconcile with and reconcile the world with. You're going to be my special nation. My own people. And as my people, you will get the privilege of being able to stand in the presence of the Lord again. I'm going to restore fellowship with you. Just like in the Garden of Eden, when my presence comes, you won't have to run. Because provision is going to be made so that you can come. Once again, God would be found among his people. So as Moses is on Sinai, the people are building this altar in the midst of their construction of the golden idol and the golden calf, God is revealing to Moses the specific plans for a structure called the tabernacle or the tent of meeting, where God would meet with his people. Think about this. This gets me. He's talking to Moses. As man is committing its plans to rebel and to sin, God is putting his plans in motion to restore fellowship. When you are in the process of unfaithfulness, God is in the process to draw you back home. When you were rebelling against your parents, God was working to reconcile you back. When you were committing adultery against your spouse, God was working to reconcile you back. In the midst of your mess, God prepares the miracle. It's so profound what's happening in this story. He's making his plans. And God gives these plans for a specific purpose. Exodus 25, verse 8, he tells Moses, Have the people of Israel build me a holy sanctuary. Why? Why does he want this sanctuary? So I can what? Live among them. He lived among us in the garden. We were separated. Now God is going to come and live among us. You must build this tabernacle and its furnishings exactly according to the pattern I will show you. His intention was to make this place his dwelling place on the earth. The place where heaven truly meets the earth. Why? Because God loves to fellowship with his children. God loves to be around those he loves. Beloved, don't you know that God loves to be around you? You know, one of the most difficult truths I ever had to believe was that God actually liked me. You know, I grew up in a tradition where it was all about, it seemed, the rules, the judgment. If you do this, you're not a good Christian. Don't don't do this, do this, don't do this, do this. And it was a constant battle trying to live up to the standard and measure that other people put upon me. And I failed it so many times. I was left feeling so broken, so condemned, and felt like I could never get close to God because of all this stuff. And when I read the scripture and when I discovered that not God not only loves me, but he likes me because he created me. 
it profoundly changed my heart and my life. Started to work against all the guilt and all the shame and the condemnation that I'd struggled with for so long. And I liken it to just my, my own kids. Like just this week, just fresh revelation. I think God gives you children often to illustrate his heart for, for you. When my kids do what they're good at, I am so proud of them. You know, this, this weekend we had a couple of football games and my sons did exceptionally well. And I was proud of them. My daughter, Jocelyn, is going to play soccer here in a few hours and it's just amazing. I just get filled with so much joy just watching her play. My daughter, London, can flip like nobody's business doing gymnastics. You know, and the other day she, or actually yesterday, she brought up a piece of paper to me where she started, you know, drawing and was trying to draw cartoons, and I've tried to show her some things, so I used to do cartoons a lot when I was younger, and she came up, and she's like, look, this is where I used to be, and then she flipped it, and she's like, this is where I am now, you know, it was just so beaming with joy about how she's gotten better, and it just fills my heart with joy, but then, to see my daughter playing the drums for the Lord, to see my son being the only one in this church that can run that dang computer at 12 years old. To see my kids worshiping with their hands raised. Joy can't express that. And your heavenly father, not only is he proud of you just watching you do what he created you to do, but then when you take what he's given you to use for his glory, oh, who wouldn't want to be around that? God likes you. He likes being around you. He loves you. Why? Because you're his and he created you. Though sin is pushing us away from God, guilt, condemnation, every poisonous dart of the enemy, it's God's unfailing love and mercy compelling us to draw back to him. Though we are separated because of our decisions to disobey and turn away, God decides in love to move in and make his home among us. And in the design of the tabernacle, we really get a glimpse into the dwelling place of God in heaven. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 11 says, So Christ has now become our high priest over all good things that have come. He's entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not part of this created world. When God gives Moses these blueprints, he's giving him a glimpse into heaven, where God exists, into the spiritual realm. Those that theorize in the multiverse theory of creation that were really just many uh, different dimensions uh, that are eternally existent are right to some degree because there are more than just this physical world. Heaven is a place where God exists, not in the physical universe, but in the immaterial, a place not created with physical matter, but spiritual matter. At the end of creation, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 1, it says, So cre the creation of the heavens and earth and everything in them was completed. As God is creating the earth in six days, he's also simultaneously preparing his dwelling place where the angels of glory would exist and his, his goodness, his, his uh, presence would exist so that there could be a place where man in the physical could intersect with God in the spiritual. It's that realm that we were disconnected from when sin entered into the world. 
Though the narrative of creation is concentrated on the earth and all that dwell in it, here in Exodus 25, we get a glimpse into this other realm described as heaven or the dwelling place of God and how objects in the physical realm reflect objects in the spiritual realm, the realm where he dwells in fullness and all of his glory. We're not going to read the full description of everything he told Moses, but for just a couple minutes, I just want you to see this, this video that does a 3D rendering of the tabernacle and everything in it, and we'll continue talking in just a moment. That is a glimpse of the tabernacle. Not only was God giving us a glimpse into heaven, but each thing that he had Moses create for the tabernacle simultaneously was revealing a deeper truth to us, revealing the Messiah, who this Messiah, his plan of salvation. He's giving us a glimpse with this tent that he had a purpose. It was not just a meeting place where God would dwell with his people, the presence of God could be found, where he would live among them, but the furnishings, every part of it was symbolic, reflecting not only the triune nature of God, reflecting the Father, Son, and the Spirit, and who they are in nature, but also God's redemptive plan to save his people from their sins once and for all. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, here's a, the prophet prophesying about the Messiah to come. He says, all right then, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son who will call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God is with us, right? This tent, this tabernacle is the meeting place where I will dwell among the people. But yet the Messiah is also called Emmanuel, which means here God is coming to be with us. It's the revelation of the Messiah. Jesus is God with us, the living tabernacle of the God Most High. Again, Israel continued, if you read throughout the Old Testament, over and over and over again, even with the tabernacle and the presence of God, Israel would find its way to rebel against the Lord, to forsake its covenant, to wander away from wicked king to wicked king, even after Solomon built a permanent structure in the temple. 
They would rebel against God, and one day God said, your sin is complete. You're going to receive judgment. The Babylonians came in, destroyed the city and the temple. The presence of God left the temple, and even after they reconstituted and reconstructed the temple, the glory of God had not been seen in the temple again until Jesus came at his birth. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, here's what the scripture says. It says, for in him, this is Jesus, dwelleth the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Jesus being the living tabernacle embodied, not just represented God, but in him was God. The fullness of God, the Father, Son, and Spirit contained in man. Though Jesus was fully man, he was also fully God. This is what theologians call the hypostatic union. He was man, but yet completely God. Never at any time did he cease being God. Yet he limited himself in the form of a human being so that he could dwell among us. Why? Because God has always been, since the beginning, in pursuit of the heart of his people. No matter where you run, beloved, he is going to come find you. He is coming after you. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, it says, We also know the Son did not come to help angels. He came to help the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, it is necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of his people. Jesus, before time, as God, had to be made, like making a tabernacle, he had to be fashioned or made into in, uh, the form of a human being so that he could dwell among us. The tabernacle reflects the very essence of Jesus, who he is, what he came to do. And so we're going to begin looking at these instructions. We're going to not get into the interior. We're going to look at through some of the exterior today uh, as we are in this study. But I want you to see how just in the very construction of what God is, is telling Moses to do, how it reveals the Lord. So the first is the exterior of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was made out of wood, but it was covered in gold. The walls of the tabernacle were made in wood. It was designed so it was portable, so it could be easily broken down and then set back up. But the walls were made of wood, and then they were covered in gold. The wood that God tells Moses to use to make the tabernacle was acacia wood. Somebody say acacia wood. Acacia is a very common wood found in the Middle East, found around this area. It was very common. It's actually not worth very much because... It was so common, and it wasn't used for, uh, like, cedars of Lebanon or any of the other more exotic woods. So it was very common. wasn't worth very much. But something interesting about the wood itself is actually what's found on the branches of the wood. Go ahead and show the, that picture. What are those? Thorns. Can you see the picture beginning to come into fruition? First and foremost, when Adam sinned, in the Garden of Eden, part of his judgment was that there was a curse on the ground. And upon the ground came what? Thorns and thistles. So as Christ is on the cross, they place a crown of thorns on his head. What's that symbolize? That the curse upon the ground, the curse that was unleashed because of Adam's sin, was being placed upon the Lord. It's fascinating, and chances are that they used acacia wood to fashion his crown of thorns because of how common it was in the Middle East. But this wood was then wrapped in gold. 
It was covered. So there's nothing special about the wood, but yet covered in gold. Isaiah 53, verse 2, talking about the Messiah, says, He shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form or comeliness. We shall see him. There is no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus was just a regular, everyday guy. If you pass Jesus on the, the road, you probably wouldn't even know it was Jesus. He's just so common, so average, so every ordinary, like the acacia. But in John chapter 1, verse 14, John tells us something significant. He says, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, for we beheld his what? Glory. We beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Gold symbolized the glory of the kingdom. The more gold you had, the more wealth and prosperous you were, the more powerful and prominent your kingdom would be, which is why many would plate everything that they could think of in gold. It symbolized glory. So though Jesus was as common as, every, as in every ordinary person, John says we saw his glory. When did that happen? It happened when Jesus took Peter, James, and John to a mountain, and his presence changed from his every ordinary day person to the glory of God. And Peter, James, and John saw Moses and Elijah appear and speak on the mountain, and they saw him as he truly was, the glorious Son of God, the plain, the common, took on the glory. And what's interesting also in this verse, in John 1.14, when it says, he dwelled among us, that word is also tra translated as tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. He came, he was created, he was common, but yet he was glorious, just like the tabernacle. The revelation in its construction would be that there would be a common but also glorious Messiah, the tabernacle of God. The gold-plated panels were also covered by four coverings. You saw in the video, you saw the walls get covered by four, it looked like four blankets or four drapes. There were four coverings. And the first was to be made of two sections of five curtains each, so five and five. Remember when we talked about the name of God, Yahweh, uh, the Hebrew letters also stand for numbers. And the number five is associated with God's grace. And the scripture tells us that Jesus came to give us grace upon grace. So there were five curtains and also another five. And then it would be woven together. So when you add five and five together, you get ten, which is the symbolic number of perfection or completion. So God's grace upon grace coming together in perfect completion. And what's interesting is he tells Moses that these curtains must be woven in a way, this first covering over the, the tabernacle must be woven in a way that it looks seamless as if to be one solid piece. In John chapter 19, verse 23, as Jesus is being crucified, it says, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and made how many? Four parts. And the each soldier, but then also his tunic. But the tunic was without what? Seam woven from top to bottom. The tunic was the closest clothing garment piece to the body. It's woven from top to bottom without a seam, just like the tabernacle covering was top to bottom. The difference between what Jesus wore and the tabernacle so the tabernacle covering was made of brilliant colors. In Exodus 26, verse 1, it says, Make the tabernacle from ten curtains of finely woven linen. Decorate these curtains with blue, purple, scarlet thread, with skillfully embroidered cherubim, 
These ten curtains must be exactly the same size, 42 feet long and 6 feet wide. Why these colors? Why these specific colors? Well, the color blue is connected to the presence of God. If you read in Exodus 24, when Moses and the 70 elders come to the mountain, God comes uh, in the angel of the Lord appears and they see the Lord. And there is this bright blue, like sapphire or lapis lazuli color that is just emanating from the presence of the Lord. So the color blue often symbolizes the presence of God. And we know Jesus is the word of God. Purple all through scripture symbolizes royalty, majesty, high officials, wealth, and prosperity. In Ezekiel 27, 7, we see that Jesus is the king of kings, as well as connected to the color purple. The color scarlet is like the color purple. It symbolizes royalty, power, honor. We see this in Daniel 5, 16. And, of course, we know all honor belongs to Jesus. All authority belongs to Jesus. So in the colors, we're seeing that this one clothed in this garment, he is the presence of God. He's majestic. He is royalty. He is all-powerful. All authority belongs to him. Matthew 28, 18 says, Jesus came and told his disciples, I've been given all what? Authority in heaven and on earth. And not only... In the colors, but the cherubim, these were not just average, ordinary angels. These were uh, almost animalistic. But they were the guardians of the presence of the Lord. When Adam and Eve sinned and they got kicked out of the garden, God stationed cherubim in front of the, the garden with a flaming sword. And they guarded the place so that man couldn't find the tree of life and damn themselves for all eternity. So the weaving and the embroidery of these walls are specific to reflect the reality that exists right now in heaven, the brilliance and majesty of the glory of Jesus, the angel of the presence of God. Such an awesome thing. The second covering was made of 11 curtains and it was made out of goat hair. The number 11 is, is connected to judgment. It's connected to sin or disorder, chaos. In Matthew 25, Jesus states that at the end of days, when judgment's being poured out, he's going to come and he's going to separate the sheep and the goats. And the sheep will go on to everlasting life and the goats will go on to everlasting judgment. And here we have a covering of 11 garments that are, that are made of goat hair. Goats, goats were also pastured animals that required shepherding. I believe God is revealing that he's coming to shepherd his people, leading them away from the judgment that is coming on sin and into salvation. Mark 6.34 says, Jesus saw a huge crowd as he stepped from the boat. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Jesus came as a shepherd to his people. And all who call on him will be saved. He's the good shepherd. The fourth, third and fourth layers were of animal skin. Ram skin and goat skin. Skins of the animals, often sacrificed on the altar of the Lord. The first one was ram skin. If you remember, when even before God claimed Israel as his people, he called out to a man named Abraham. And he asked Abraham, who spent his whole life without children, finally God blesses him with a child. He asked Abraham to sacrifice his son on a mountain. So Abraham obeys, obeys the Lord. And as they're on the mountain, he's getting ready to sacrifice his son the angel of the Lord appears, interrupts him, says, no, don't do that. Now that I see that you've withheld nothing from me, I'm going to bless you. And over on the side, he sees a ram caught in a thicket. And he sacrifices the ram in place of his son. The ram symbolized 
the substitutionary sacrifice that would be given in place of mankind, just as Jesus, as God, was our substitutionary sacrifice. And then we have the, the goat skin. The goat skin, again, symbolizes judgment. It symbolizes sacrifice. There's a, a sacrifice in Israel in the Old Testament called the scapegoat. Have you guys heard that term, scapegoat? Where it comes from is from the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. They had a sacrifice on the, around the Day of Atonement where they would take two goats that had to be identical, without blemish. And they would lay the sins of the people on one goat. They would literally put their hands on the goat, and the priest would confer all the sins of the people on the goat. But then they would take the innocent one, and they would kill that one. And they would take the one that had the sins, and they would release it out of the city. And it symbolized that the innocent would suffer for the guilty, and the sins would be expunged from the nation. It's a scapegoat sacrifice. And so here we have connected with goats this sacrifice that Jesus would be the sacrifice to take up our place, to take away our sins. And these animal skins were used to protect the contents of the tabernacle. These, these items that represented God and his very throne, the very dwelling place of God. And what's interesting is just as Jesus is the true tabernacle of God, he was wrapped in flesh just as the tabernacle of Moses was wrapped in flesh. The significance is, is awesome. Even Jesus made provision to cover our shame in the garden when he sacrificed the animals and made clothes for Adam and Eve. But the people, just like Adam and Eve, when they hear the voice of the Lord on the mountain, on Mount Sinai, they beg God not to speak. They see his glory. They turn to worship the golden calf. What does God do? God veils his glory so that the people could come near. And he opens the door through sacrifice so that relationship could be restored. And even though God came and dwelled in the tabernacle and lived among the people, it was still only for a chosen group. The priests that were anointed of God would be the ones that could come near the tabernacle. Everyone else was camped around at a distance. Only the priests could come into the presence of God. And this is why Jesus had to come, why he had to be born as a human being, so that it wasn't a selective group any longer that could enter the presence of God, but that all who called on the name of the Lord would be saved. This is why Jesus had to be wrapped in flesh. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 15 says, Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood, for only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. See, judgment brings death. Sin opened the door to judgment. And God promised Adam and Eve, if you disobey, you shall surely die. Death gave birth to fear, and fear is why we run from the Lord. Ultimately. If you believed God was the safest place you could go, you would run to him every time. You'd run every time. God, I'm struggling in my marriage, God. God, I'm struggling with my kids, to my knees in prayer. God, I'm struggling at work, here. But so often we don't run to the Lord, we run elsewhere. But beloved, Jesus pursued us in the garden and we hid. 
He pursued us in the tabernacle, and we rebelled. And he pursued us in the flesh, and we crucified him because of sin. But he took on flesh so he could be your high priest and offer a sacrifice that would break the curse of fear once and for all. That curse that keeps pushing us away from God. Break the power of the devil, the deceiver, the thief, the destroyer who had the power of death. And now, because he's risen victoriously and gloriously, he's able to help us. When we're tempted and we're being tested, he can provide a way from escape to overcome by breaking this curse and tearing down every stronghold of human reasoning, every proud obstacle that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, every false argument, every lofty idea, God's power in his death is strong enough to break every stronghold. And instead, by being overcome with fear and death and judgment, we can be confident and find shelter in his love. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible is 1 John 4, 17 and 18. This is something I wrestled with my whole life until recently. It says, as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. The more time you spend with God, the more time you walk in his presence, the more your love will grow more and more perfect and will not be afraid on the day of judgment. I have so many conversations with believers, especially as we look at the madness in the news, the madness on our streets, that think maybe Jesus is coming back. So many believers get struck with fear because of that, the return of Jesus Christ. When the Bible says it's our blessed hope. His return is our blessed hope, but there's so much fear associated. And here he's saying, if we live in God, our love grows more perfect. We will not be afraid on the day of judgment. Think about Adam and Eve. Here they are naked in their sin. God's presence comes in. The glory of God is gazed upon them, and they run, and they hide. Israel sees God on the mountain. He come in glorious appearing. He speaks with his voice, and they turn the other way. They run and pursue other idols. Here it's saying if we live in God, our love will grow, and we won't be afraid on the day of judgment. Think how significant he, he, what he's saying here in light of the reality, because there is no fear. We can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus in the world. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we're afraid, it's for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have what? Not fully experienced his perfect love. When you recognize that he is in pursuit of you, not to judge you, but to call you home. When you realize he likes you. And he wants to spend time with you. When you realize that as your father, he would die for you, it changes things. It changes things. Beloved love, his love casts out all fear. Human love is not dependable. We let each other down all the time. We hurt each other's feelings. It's not secure. But God's love is perfectly secure. God's love is perfectly secure. His love breaks the heavy yoke of guilt and shame. Why? Because Jesus came not to judge the world or condemn it, but to call sinners to repentance. 
His love frees those who are in bondage and enslaved to their past mistakes. Jesus went to the cross so that those who are guilty could become innocent as he who is innocent became guilty for, our, for us. He came to pursue you and draw you back to himself. And you know, one day he's going to come again. He's going to come again. In John 14, 1 through 4, he says, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. Trust in God. Also trust in me. There's more than enough room in my father's home, right? The tabernacle is a picture of heaven. This is where God dwells. This is his home. He's like, that place of glory, of splendor, there's more than enough room in my father's home. If there were not so, I wouldn't have told you that I was coming back to get you, to prepare a place for you. Jesus, he went to heaven so that he could build your place. He could make your spot. He could customize your place in Father's house. That's what he's doing right now as he's praying for you. He's interceding. I'm not even getting into that because that's next week's message. But I'm just telling you, right now, before the throne of God, before the heavenly ark of the covenant, the mercy seat, Jesus is there making room for you. He knows your favorite color which may change when you get there because who knows how awesome heaven's going to be, right? He knows everything about you, and he's preparing. He's making room. So he's saying, don't be troubled. Don't fear the judgment. Right now, he's making a place for you in the tabernacle of heaven, the house of God, in heavenly places. Scripture says we're seated with Jesus in heavenly places because one day he's going to Jesus 
He's given you His Spirit, and He's in your heart. You're in His, and nothing can separate you from His love. And now the church, beloved, is the tabernacle of God as we wait for the heavenly Jerusalem to come to the earth. You who are common have become uncommon because you've become altogether new, safely living near and dear to his heart. I just feel that in this day and age, I'm going to ask the worship team to come. In this day and age, in the times that we're living with so much unsettledness in the world, and as we look at our lives and we have all these questions, the thing that's going to root us to keep our faith strong is recognizing God's perfect love. And God loves you, not just with his heart, not just with a passionate heart, but he loves you so much that he is pursuing you so that you will come close to him. Scripture says if you draw close to the Lord, he'll draw close to you. And he wants you in the closest place he can find, and that's in the center of his heart. And the way we get into the heart of the Lord is with a relationship with him. It's by accepting what he did for us on the cross. Putting an end to the stuff that got in between that pushed us away. Sin is in the way. And every time we choose sin, we put some distance between us and the Lord. But here he's saying, I don't want distance any longer. I want you to be so close. I want you to be safe. I want you to be in my presence. I want peace for you. I want joy for you. When, when the world is stabbing you in the back, I want you to find healing in my heart. When all you see is negativity and you feel down in the dumps and depressed and you can't get out of this gloom, I want the joy of the Lord to rise up and bring light again into your life. And you find that in my heart. When your family just can't get along and you feel like a terrible parent, when you feel like a terrible spouse, when you feel like a failure in your job, I want you to be so rooted in my love that you see what I say about you. You believe what I say. You see what I see. I see the kid with the picture. Flipped around to say, look what I, look how I've grown. I'm not what I once was. I'm all together new. You find that in my heart. The tabernacle of Moses was an invitation into the heart of God. And Jesus has come and he gave his life on the cross. And when he did, that veil that separated that holy place from the most holy place was torn. And the gateway to the presence, the gateway to the heart of God was made open. And now there's a highway to that holy place. And it's through trusting Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And maybe you're here today and you're wrestling with your identity in Christ because you seriously, you've not encountered the perfect love with cast out all fear. And today you need to come. When we stand, you need to come. You need to get with one of our prayer team members and let them pray that prayer of faith with you to invite Jesus into your life as Lord and Savior so that you can encounter the very love of God and begin to recognize who you are in Him. But beloved, maybe you're struggling in other areas of your life. There's doubt, there's fear. 
perfect love casts out all fear. You need to counter with the heart of the Father. You need to come. This is where the presence of the Lord is. It's in this place. Where two or more are gathered in his name, I am here. It's what Jesus promised. It's what he said. If you're a believer, you didn't come to find Jesus. You brought him with you. Because you're in his heart. And often the difficulty is discovering that we have access to the presence of God 24-7. And so we need one another to come together to pray, to confess, to, to intercede so that what the enemy has done to us and through us all weekend can be broken away and we can encounter God's love again. In just a moment when we stand, you respond. We're going to worship. We're going to praise. If you need to give your life to Jesus, come and do that. If you need healing in your body, come. God is a healer. He doesn't just heal. That's who he is. He's a healer. We believe it. Come and receive healing. If you're down, if you're depressed, if you've got fear, you've got anxiety, come and encounter the love of the Father. There's love for you. It's like an overwhelming spring. I'm just so thankful that in this day and age, I can truly say, God, you love me and you like me. And I don't have to be anything more than just who you created me to be. And it's your love, oh Lord, that changes me. It's not my attempts to be religious. It's not my attempts to be spiritual. It's not all the stuff I try to do. It's simply because of who you are and what you've done for me. God, I know there are people here today that need an encounter with your love. There are people here today that are still hiding from you. They've gotten really good at sowing fig leaves over their nakedness. And God, today we recognize that you see every heart, you know every thought. There's nothing you don't see. There's nothing we can hide from your gaze. But you don't look at us with judgment. You look at us with compassion. And you're calling out. You're saying, come, just come. Let me take that. Let me help you there. Give that to me. Come and, and Become honest with yourself and confess that. And let me do the work. Let me show you what my love can do in your life. God, I just pray for those that are wrestling with those areas, that they would trust you. You said, let your heart not be troubled. If you believe in God, believe also in me. God, let us trust you today. Let us trust your heart. Open the door to the heavenly tabernacle this morning, Jesus. And as we draw close, you draw close to us. We thank you, Lord, for everything you are and all you're doing. It's in your wonderful name we pray. Amen. Let's stand. If God's working in your heart and you want to come forward for prayer, now the time. From all of us at Vertical Life Church, we want to say thank you for listening. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please consider making a tax-deductible donation www.blchurch.tv forward slash give. Thank you and God bless.